go ahead and uh, take your seat and uh, get ready for the Word of God. And uh, we are very privileged today. Jeff, do you want to join me up here on the stage for a second? Uh, we are pleased to have uh, Jeff uh, Bucknam with us here uh, today to bring God's Word. And I want to say a little bit about him before we get going here, but he is the lead teaching pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel uh, in Chicago, and that's the church that founded us back in 2001. That's the church that Cheryl and I went to for uh, the residency that I did there, and I was joking with Jeff. I said, like, the residency in those days was, there's your cubicle, go to whatever meetings you want to go to and learn all about us. So there was no formal training, it was just observation, come back and plant a church uh, like that one here, and we sought to do that. Now, Jeff, before taking uh, on his new role um, a year ago at Harvest in Chicago, he pastored Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, uh, B.C., and um, prior to that, he serves, served as a pastor and a professor in New Zealand, and, um, but he was born in the U.S., born in, in Boston, which I'm, I'm not really fond of that as a Montreal guy, um, but he... We didn't really even explore that. We didn't get time to no, talk about all of that, but I consider it one of your great weaknesses. It's one of your great weaknesses, yeah. Um, he grew, we're, we're off track already. This no. is terrible. Uh, but he was born in Boston, but grew up in Washington State, other, other coast of the U.S. And your, your mother is from Prince Edward Island, yeah. so you have Canadian blood in you as well. And now you live in Illinois, and I just want, like, as I'm writing this out, I, I was like, you have enough passports to rival Jason Bourne, and you sound like a fugitive. Like you. <laughs> so we won't go too deeply into that, because we have no idea where that might go. But uh, Je Jeff is married to Jeannie, and she's going to be here at the second service. Uh, they've been married for 28 years, which is awesome, and uh, they have three kids. Uh, Kids, three children who range in age from 12 to 21, boy, boy, girl, girl mm. bringing up the rear there. And so, uh, Jeff, you told our elders at breakfast yesterday that you've pastored, so you've pastored three churches, uh, is that right? A lead pastor of three churches. A uh, lead pastor of three churches. Yeah, yeah, and that you have, uh, in each of those three cases, they've been turnaround churches, so churches that yeah. have been in crisis, and, um, and in fact, that's what prompted you to pursue your current assignment at, at Harvest Chicago, which is a church that we love. Uh, because uh, that church certainly fits the description of a turnaround church. Well, not yet, but yeah. Yeah, okay, so it hasn't away. turned around we're yet. Away. Okay, okay. We're, we're getting there. So uh, you're, in, you're in the midst of it. Um, now, I have a couple of questions for you before you get into God's Word here. And uh, the, the first question would be, uh, what, what would prompt you to leave beautiful British Columbia for Illinois? Um, <laughs> as, because I, like, I've been to parts of Illinois, and aside from Chicago, there's really not much there. No. No. And, um, but especially, uh, you just became Canadian citizens, like yeah. a, a year before you came or shortly? Uh, a couple years before, right before okay. COVID hit, actually. Okay. So, and what possesses, so there's a multi-layered question here, what possesses a pastor to take on the hardest assignments that they can possibly imagine? Because... Pastoring is difficult anyway. I mean, I can attest to this. These, this, yep. I mean, this is hard here. They smell like sheep. <laughs> so, so answer that question. Why would you take something like this on? Well, you know, you, just like in your life, you know, you have a series of providences that kind of mix together. You wonder how you ended up where you are, and then you think, oh, like, I had this change of heart here, or this door opened here, or whatever. Um, our church in British Columbia was doing great, and uh, I've been there for 15 years and has seen the Lord really do some really great things there. Um, COVID hit. We had just uh, voted to, to build a building, which we needed, and all this stuff. It was great. Everything was great. <laughs> and then COVID hit, and it wasn't great. Um, 
not, not just the COVID stuff, but I just, I thought to myself at that point with a couple friends, you know, if I were ever going to make a change, uh, this is the right time to do it. I had uh, some really capable staff with me. I had another guy on the staff who I'd brought along for just such an occasion, if it were ever to happen. And I thought, you know, he could take this church. Uh, we, had, we had basically tried to take that church and, and make it into um, a kind of a mission training center. We wanted to plant churches all over Canada, especially. And um, we're in the, in the process of doing that, training leaders, all that kind of thing. And so I was like, you know, I would love to do this, take all that I've learned and do it somewhere else. Um, but my heart has always been for the hurting things. Like I don't, I'm a kind of a catalyst. I'm the guy who comes in and points out all the elephants in the room. And um, I had a friend who told me you should consider thinking about uh, Harvest Bible Chapel who's looking for one. And the first, for, working for a pastor, the first thing I said is, mm, no, I don't, think I'll, I don't think I'll do that, right? Um, you know, I'd followed James McDonald's ministry. I knew, I knew Mark Driscoll's ministry and all the, they were kind of buddies. And so I... You know, as time went on, more and more, you know, the Lord kind of gets a hold of your heart. And uh, we came and visited a harvest clandestine so that no one would know, although they'd say, hello, wink, wink, you know, like you're there for a reason. So um, I, I eventually was sitting actually at a Starbucks coffee with my wife, and I, and I said to her, I, is there anything more Christian than setting aside one's comfort and going to the hurting to see them renewed. I was like, that, I, that sounds like the incarnation to me. It sounds like the Good Samaritan to me. So how is it that we're supposed to see this church and all the hurting and pain that they've been through lying on the side of the road and I'm supposed to like walk by and not, and not try it? My church uh, viewed itself as a sending church, so I went back to my church and said, um, so you know how we've been talking about all this sending stuff all this time? I don't think we ever thought that maybe I would be the one who is sent, <laughs> but I think that's what's happening here, and the elders of our church got very much on board and were like, yeah, we actually think this might be the case, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to send you to Harvest Bible Chapel in Illinois, and we're going to see if the Lord can do a great work there, and it's been really hard. Yeah. It's a very hard, hard year, and you're right. It's it's not you know. There's the mental thing that you say, oh yeah, it's going to be great. You know, I'll show up and Jesus will do His work. But then you get there and you realize that Jesus does His work over time, and usually through a lot of pain. And you're like, oh, this wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. Right. But <laughs> uh, but it's still great, and you know, you're walking in the ways of the Lord. So. And I, I want to just so we all understand in, in the pastoral realm, it it takes a certain amount of, of courage and hard work to plant a church. It takes another level altogether to revitalize a church to help a church that's in crisis. And uh, I don't believe for a section a second I have any of those gifts. And so this is a, a really special assignment that God has given mm-hmm. to uh, his his uh, his servant to be able to help harvest Chicago in this way. So like so we understand, you know what what Jeff is talking about here is significant, a significant challenge. So I want to ask this question. What's the biggest challenge? Because we love this church so much. Yeah. Um, uh, what is the biggest challenge that Harvest Chicago is facing now after the termination of a longtime founding pastor, 30 plus years in the church? Um, what's the biggest challenge that you're facing there? Have you guys ever had a concussion? Yeah, yeah. yeah some of you. And uh, you get back to the point where you, you look normal, but you're not normal. 
right? And the light hurts your eyes. And every time somebody moves quickly, you're like, oh my gosh. And your head hurts and you have to sleep all the time and that kind of thing. So everybody thinks that you're back to normal. Hey, it's so great to have you back to work and stuff. But you know deep inside, nothing normal about this. Uh, Harvest has had a pretty significant concussion. And while things look normal on the surface and you show up and you see all the things that are happening and you're like, oh, there's ministry here and there's ministry there. Everywhere you go, the person you're talking to is, con- is concussed. And um, the new people who walk in like me, we're not concussed, but it's hard, and it's hard for us to understand. You're kind of like, hey, can you just snap out of this at this, some point? And they're like, I can't tolerate the light. So um, it's, just, it's a work of patience, I think, um, while at the same time pointing out the ways that the church needs to change in order to function more biblically and, and represent, I think, more of the, the humility that I think God blesses. So um, that's, that's really where we're at. Mm-hmm. And um, I live, I tell people, I live under the shadow, I, I, I serve under the shadow of James McDonald, um, which is both a good and bad, by the way. James says some amazing things. You're in a church right now because James McDonald had a vision to plant churches. So let's never denigrate those who've gone before us. We stand on their shoulders. But there's also the other side of it, too, where James was not as kind, perhaps, at points where, as he should have been. So that's, that's, that's a good answer. And those were obviously difficult years for us as well. And, and, you know, and this all dates back to five years ago and three years ago, 2017, 2019, were significant years in that. So if you were part of Harvest in those days, you know that we felt some of the impact of that concussion as well mm. here and that our relationship between Harvest Chicago was estranged for a period of time. This represents, in a lot of ways, um, uh, a mending of that relationship, a reestablishing of the relationship with our founding church. And we're so excited to have oh, you I'm here thrilled to, to bring here. God's yeah. Word right now. So let's welcome Jeff as he comes hey. to bring God's Word. Thanks, Thank you. Uh, you're going to need a Bible. And uh, you're going to need to open it to Hebrews chapter 12, only two verses, so piece of cake. Uh, You'll be reading the verses together with me a couple times over. I just want to point out a few things, uh, to kind of take three passes at them and show you something different each time we go go through it. Um, You know the name Charles Templeton? Some of you, especially in this region of the world, many of you will know. If you're younger here, you might not know the name of Charles Templeton. For those of you who don't know his name and his story, he was basically the Billy Graham of Canada. Um, he was from Toronto uh, in the 1940s, so a long time ago, 80 years ago. Uh, mass evangelism really hit big in the United States. Which When I say mass evangelism, you like massive tent meetings, so I'm going to come to your town and uh, maybe we'll, we'll rent out the Rogers Center, and uh, you'll bring all your friends, and at the end, we'll do this big call forward, and people will stream forward, and we'll pray to receive Christ. That, that kind of thing, a kind of Billy Graham crusade sort of thing. Well, Charles Templeton actually was friends with, with Billy Graham, and he was the Canadian version of that. In 1946, uh, he was listed as one of the men, quote, best used of God by the National Association of Evangelicals in the United States, which is kind of funny to me, because I'm like, that's an interesting award. Do we still give this stuff out? You're the best pastor award today, you know? Um, But best used of God in 1946. So a a remarkably strong-hearted Christian um, 
leading people to Jesus leader. He was the pastor of Avenue Road Church in Toronto and was very involved in the early stages of Youth for Christ. And so if you've ever been involved with that ministry, he had a huge part to play, Templeton did, in its, in its beginning. Uh, newspapers reported, this is in the States now, that he was winning about 150 converts a night. In a week-long meeting in Evansville, Indiana, 91,000 of the 128,000 people in the city came to hear him preach. So that's a big draw. <laughs> That's a big draw. But three out of four people that you, that you talk to on the street, hey, did you go to the Templeton thing? Oh, yeah. I was there the other night. He began having serious doubts, though, about his Christian faith, um, actually while he was preaching. The stories that he tells were that he heard the words coming out of his mouth, and he just came to realize he didn't believe any of them. But he, you know, he, he still kept doing it because it's his job, and this is his living and his family and all this sort of stuff. And so for a while, he was preaching, and he didn't believe much of anything that, that he said. Um, he gave his last sermon, he said, and he didn't believe a single word of it. There's stories about him coming out of the pulpit and walking straight down out of the back of the church and never coming back. I don't know if that's true or not, but the picture's right. He wrote a book called Farewell to God. You can still buy it. In it, he said this, I oppose the Christian church because for all the good it sometimes does, it presumes to speak in the name of God and to propound and advocate beliefs that are outdated, demonstrably untrue, and often in their various manifestations, deleterious to individuals and to society. I've been in ministry for 26 years. And I could give you a list of Templetons in my ministry. Brothers and sisters uh, who have led churches, who have attended leadership development classes, who people who I believed were going to be really, really great uh, leaders and have a great impact for God around the world, who are now, if I made a phone call today, who are now either wouldn't take the call because I'm a Christian pastor or would take the call, and if as soon as I brought up Christianity, they would want to hang up or fight me. It has been easily the hardest part of my ministry life, to see people that you invest so much time in, have so much hope in, just give it all up. You know names like this. Joshua Harris, recent guy, he... When I was at Northview Community Church in, in British Columbia, we, Joshua was at, at, at Regent at, in Vancouver, and he, we'd invite him out, and he did some of our men's ministry stuff. If you read about Joshua Harris today, he, he doesn't believe at all. Rob Bell is the name. Some might know. Grand Rapids, Michigan, big pastor. People called him the next Billy Graham. Christianity Today called him the next Billy Graham. Today, he lives in California and believes some mixture of what Oprah believes with Deepak Chopra, and I don't know. He would not claim the term Christian. Ex-evangelicals, have you heard that term? It's, uh, that's, hey, look, I used to be a Christian, go to an evangelical church, in other words, a church that believes in the gospel of Jesus and proclaims it and believes in conversion and the Bible, and, but I'm not anymore. 
I now have a blog and I write all about how horrible the church is. Uh, these are modern day Hymenaeuses and Alexanders. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, you will find that Paul had his own problems. These guys had shipwrecked their faith, according to Paul. So it's not a modern problem. It's an all the history of the church problem. It occurs to me that as I talk to a room full of Christian people who've showed up early on a Sunday morning, you're like, you guys are the committed ones, right? You got up out of bed to come. 11 o'clock people, they're like, get out of bed, right? <laughs> but you're, here you are, and I'm talking to you, and you're the ones who we should all think, yes, you're going to continue in the faith. But I'm telling you statistically in the room, what, there's like a quarter of you who aren't? Something's going to happen in your life. It's going to make you question God. And I, I don't know. Make friends with certain people. You want to be part of this other group. And the requirement for admission to that group will be a termination of your Christian faith. It won't happen all at a moment. It'll just happen. It'll happen over time. So the que- here's the question that you have to ask. What does Scripture say about someone like Templeton? What does scripture say about somebody who professes faith in Christ, but doesn't persevere in that faith? Look, I teach entire classes on that question, but let me just tell you in shorthand, the answer in the Bible is really clear. Uh, Hebrews 3, verse 14, uh, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. The writer of Hebrews can't say it any clearer, okay? There's lots of places in the Bible. This actually takes up most, this actually, this subject takes up more space in the New Testament than any other subject that I can think of, honestly, continuing in the faith. And every book of the Bible, continuing in the faith. And Hebrews 3 says it right. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our, for, our original conviction firmly to the end. So look, giving up is not an option, For those who want to stand before God one day and hear commendation and not condemnation. So how do we do that? What does it look like to continue in the faith? What kinds of attitudes do you need to have? What kinds of practices do you need to have in place in order that you might finish the race, as Paul said, kept the faith? So here, this passage where Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, I think gives a really great summary of a few of those. Um, I like pithy titles, so here we go. Uh, in order to continue in the faith, you need to, uh, number one, embrace your race. Number two, run without the robe. And third, welcome the witnesses. You like that? R's and, R's and W's? Okay, I'm pretty proud of it, so. <laughs> embrace your race, run without the robe, and welcome the witnesses. Okay, so here's the first of those. Embrace your race. Like I said, we're going to take a few passes through this short passage together. I'm just going to point out something different each time, all right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. And here's the phrase I want you to focus on in this first pass. The race marked out for us. Let us run with perseverance the race 
marked out for us. It's passive, right? So somebody else has marked out a race for you. And of course, in the Bible, you know who that somebody is, right? It's what we call a divine passive. And God has marked out a race. So the image here is in the Roman world, uh, when, when this stuff was written, uh, there were things called race masters. Man, they loved their Olympic games. They loved their games. They had a thing called the Corinthian games that would happen, and they'd last like 180 days. Like the Olympics on steroids. They loved this stuff. And so uh, race masters would come along, and they would mark out courses. You guys ever seen the steeplechase or uh, maybe, a, maybe a cross-country race, and you have to figure out what kind of torture you want to put the runners through. You know, hey, look at the last four kilometers. We're going to make them climb up this hill and climb the cliff and then come down the other side. You know, sadistic men do this. So, so, so you put together this race. So the race masters would design a particular race. And that's the image that, that you've got here is that God is a race master and he is designing a particular race. But here, now here's the question that I want you to ask and we'll try to answer. Uh, is it the same race for everyone. Like, is God just marking out a race and saying, okay, everybody's going to run the same race. And at the end, just, there's just one race marked out for everybody to follow. Now, my argument here is no. And I'm going to do, do this by going to the context of this passage. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, Verses 32 and following. You guys know Hebrews chapter 11. Those of you who've been in the church for a while, it's called the Hall of Faith. It's a story of a whole bunch of different people who uh, had faith despite all the present circumstances, how it looked horrible. They had faith in, Christ, in God so that they finished their race. So they, they continue to the very end. Faithful. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, he kind of gets to the end of this list of a whole bunch of people who have, who have done that very thing. And he says, what sure more shall I say? I, I don't have time to tell about Gideon, about Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. These are all good things. Yes. I mean, uh, shut the mouths of lions. That would have been a good one. You know, through faith, you end up seeing immediately the, the shutting of the mouths of the lions. Quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned to strength. Amen. That's what we want. And who became powerful in battle and, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Now, I'm pausing here because there's a shift in this passage right here. All that front end stuff, we're like, yes, now that's a race I can run. You know, where, where I'm called to have faith in a particular moment, and then you show the faith, and immediately God comes through. You put us in that oven, says Shadrach. And you don't get burned? And then, and then here, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. 
Some faced jeers and fogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were put to death, guys. They didn't get there to the edge of death, and the angels came and swooped them away. They fly away. Nope. No taunting. Some faced jeers and floggings, even chains, imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. You see it though, right? There, there are some people in God's plan who will experience the immediate outcome of their faith. They will pray and pray and pray and they will receive the answer. And then there are others who are not. Have you ever spent time around people who, you know, they get up in church or maybe they give a testimony and they're like, I had cancer and we prayed together and had the prayer meetings and I went to the elders and they laid hands on me and they, I was healed. I went back to the doctor and they said, you don't even know where, what we were thinking. There's no tumors anywhere. I've prayed for people like that. They come back and what do we do? Praise God. That's amazing. I've also prayed for people, the same prayers who were having the same prayer meetings, who go back to the doctor and say, the doctor says, actually, it's gotten worse. You have like a day or two or a week to live. And the family members sit in the room while their loved one has just died. And now they're hearing this testimony about how God has come through this others, this other, and they're thinking to themselves, what the heck? Like, I don't, what? It's clear that each of us has a different race to run. It's clear. Some face hills while others rest in relative ease. We are tempted in those moments to keep looking into the other lanes and claim fairness, God. If you were fair, it would all be the same. And that kind of uh, bitterness and frustration is often the very thing that will plague your heart. You get angry at God and you'll shake your fists and eventually you'll say, I'm done. I'm done. You know, you might find it interesting that um, there's this little scene after, after Jesus rises from the dead and then Peter, you remember when Peter comes and there's the big open fire and Jesus is there and he's like, hey, put the nets out on the other side. And Peter's like, they do. And then they get all the fish back in and they jump out of the, Peter jumps out of the boat and he swims in and they're having a fish for breakfast with Jesus. Yuck, right? What the heck? What are you doing? Okay, so they're having fish for breakfast and then... He, he confronts Peter, right? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then this. John 21, verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, Peter, that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Uh, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter was glorify God. Uh, Peter, you're going to die a lot like I just died. They're going to clothe you in ways you didn't want, and you're going to stretch out your hands like this. 
and you're not going to want to go there. What does that look like? And then he said to him, follow me. This is your future, Peter. This is the race, Peter. This is the road that I have marked out for you, Peter. Follow me. You're not going to want to follow me because that's the road, but you follow me. All right, Peter, verse 20, turned and saw the other disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? You just wish John would just say his own name, right? This is John, but he doesn't. When Peter saw him and asked, what about him? So Peter's running in his lane. Okay, I'll follow you. And he looks over in the other lane and there's this guy. He's got his own little like golf cart. Mm. <laughs> what about him? And Jesus said, look, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You, Peter, follow me. You, you do know that Jesus has a plan for each and every one of us and each and every one of them, and they are not the same plan. And the comparison between my plan and his plan, or that guy's plan, or that lady's plan, is absolutely senseless. What God has placed before you right now, that's the race you're supposed to run. You weren't asked to run my race. And I wasn't asked to run yours. I counseled a couple church planters on, on one occasion. <laughs> they, they came in and they were in tears. Their church plant had, had failed, in their words. It started this church plant. Everything was going okay, but then everything fell apart. They didn't have any money. The community just turned against them. People stopped coming and they left the church and all that kind of thing. You're sitting in a church right now that, that, where that didn't happen, where God's kind providence, everything went right, at least early on, <laughs> right? And now you have a church. And it's, it's fantastic. But there's lots of people where that, that, that doesn't happen. These guys came in to my, my, my office and they were like, listen, we wanted everything that God wanted. We, want, we believed that God called us to this. We, we, we knew that this community needed a new gospel church. There's none around here. Why would God not, not do this? And, you know, the answer that pastors like me give there, and I got all sorts of theological answers that I could probably give you, but the simple answer is not your race. God's got something else in mind for you, man. So embrace your race. You're the only person in the world who's been called to run your race right now. You know that thing that's stuck in your mind right now, the challenge that you have, what everybody walks into church with, and this thing that plagues their mind, and it rolls us like that under that baseline that sits underneath every other thought. That, yeah, that, that's, God's going God's gonna to cause you to bloom there. That's your race but I hate it. Yeah. It's hard. It'll get increasingly hard. And then sometimes the wind will be at your back. Embrace your race. Second, um, you need to run without the robe. Uh-oh. Uh, so here we go. Verse, verse one again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, <laughs> and here's the line, right? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. L let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. 
Uh, so my, my friend, Alan, who I went to seminary with all those years ago, is a New Zealander, and he was an amazing runner. He used to ask me to go out for a run, and I said, I don't run. He said, do you ride your bike? I said, yeah. Well, I'm trying to run a marathon, so you ride your bike next to me, okay? Like, I'd get tired before he did on the bike, <laughs> you know? I'd barely be going. I'd be like, man, I'm, can we take a break? <laughs> But he'd keep going. He's an amazing runner. Anyway, he wanted to qualify for the New York City Marathon, so he had to post a certain time and other ones. And eventually, he actually did qualify the New York City Marathon. He got into reading all sorts of things about running. Uh, I remember going to the mall with him, though. He had to buy uh, some clothes for the race, for the marathon. And I said, what's wrong with the clothes you had? You have. And he's like, oh, no, 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 that's not going to, those aren't going to work. <laughs> He said, I need something as lightweight as I possibly can. So we went to the store, and he looked at these different shoes that were like different of, uh, they were different weights by measures of like milligrams. <laughs> but he's like, that really matters, does it? Um, anyway, he, he ended up getting these shorts on. Like seriously, we're in the middle of this mall in Dallas, Texas, and he pulls these shorts on. And have you ever seen running shorts? And the answer is no, nobody sees them. They're like, that's, that's, that's so short, right? Like, nobody sees the shorts. So anyway, he's there, and he puts his shirt on, and he puts a skin-tight shirt on, and he starts doing the thing that, you know, you hope your husband never does when you go to the store, like, ooh, I'm going to try this out, you know? <laughs> he is literally running up and down the aisles of the store, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, Alan, stop, Alan. We did, and I finally get him, and I say, dude, did you knock it off? What are you doing? He said, well, i got to find out if it's gonna, they're going to hold me or pull me back in any way. Well, yeah, there's a great image. That's what Paul's, or sorry, the writer of Hebrews is pointing out here. He's just like saying, look, uh, if you really want to run and you want to run well, uh, it, it might be a good idea to get, get rid of the fleece. Uh, you, you might want to ditch the sweatpants, right? The baggy ones that drag you down. Now, he, he says that that's sin that so easily entangles, right? Um, the Romans, when they ran, uh, they, they ran very popular running races in those days. That was like the thing. Even now, and the 100 meters is like the best thing going. Everybody watched the Olympics so they can see Usain Bolt. Um, but in those days, they ran naked. That was just sort of understood, right? And the reason you run naked is because you're, I don't want anything to pull me back. I don't want anything getting in the way. So you strip completely down and, and, and away you go. So, so the writer here pictures living the Christian life as running a, a, a race like this. And good runners lay aside all that's hindering them running well. And clearly, that's sin, right? The sin that so easily entangles. Yes. And so you and I can name all sorts of sins, you know, things that we get involved in, sexual sin and sins of, of, of the tongue, mouth, you know, gossip. And these, these are the kinds of things that will pull you away from Christ. And everyone in the room is going to be like, yeah, I know that. I know that, that I can actually fall in love with particular sins that will draw me away from Jesus. Yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty, yes, I got that. But did you notice what else he said? Uh, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Wait a minute, the sin that so easily entangles is not all of it? Yeah, no, everything it hinders too. So what kinds of things non-sinful things get in the way of us following Jesus. 
Well, Jesus actually gives you some indication. Remember the story of the parable of the sower? You know, sower goes and he throws a bunch of seed, and if some lands on a path, and some lands on the rocky ground, and some lands on the thorny ground, and then some on the good ground. And he said, this is basically what it's like when uh, the word of God hits the heart of a person, when the gospel hits the heart of a person. Some people receive, don't receive it at all. Some people receive it well and through perseverance produce a crop, but there's these middle two that start well and then fade away. That third soil, that thorny one, the problem with it is it gets down and it, it competes for water. If you've ever been involved in farming situations, right? You got to go around and get rid of the thistles or the weeds because the weeds will compete always for the good grass. It, seriously, go to anyone's house in the middle of August and you're like, oh, the weeds grow way better, right? They way better than the grass does. Well, this is the image he's saying is that, look, if you don't get rid of the weeds, if you don't get rid of the weeds out of this thing, it's going to choke off the plant. You can have brown faith. But then he tells you what it is. You're like, oh yeah, but what are those? Stop talking in these weird, you know, metaphors, Jesus. Give me the real deal. And he says it in Luke 8, 14, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on the way, they are choked by, ready? Life's worries. You have any of those? Riches. You know, I'm saying that to the richest people who've ever lived in the entire history of the world, right? Like we, guys, we, we live in castles. I've been to castles. And then I've been to some houses. The castles are nothing to speak about. The houses. But life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Wait a minute. If you sat me down and you said to me, what should you focus your life on? If the Western world were to summarize that whole thing, I would say, hmm, you know what I want to do? I want to have rich, I want to have riches, and I want to have a lot of pleasure. And yet, Jesus is saying, oh, but those are the things. The focus on those things are the things that choke out the faith. I was at a conference a number of years ago, and um, many of you might know the name John Piper. John Piper's a He's a great preacher, but he preaches like this, and then every once in a while, he goes really bad. And he, at this one point, he was doing part of his manuscript, and he said, he said, I own a leather couch, and it is the most dangerous thing in my home. <laughs> All right, John. And his reason was because he was like, when I sit down in this leather couch, I don't want to get up. It is the most comfortable thing I've ever been in. And all of my desire to follow Jesus and to sacrificially give and all this stuff, it all goes away. He said, I love the couch. I'm going to keep the couch. But if you're not careful with the leather couches of your life, with the sports that you so love, which are good things, guys, they're fantastic things. You should play all the sports. God loves you playing the sports. He made you physical. You get to worship him by the use of your body and the joy of the competition. But these good things can become ultimate things. And when they become ultimate things, they draw your heart away from the ultimate thing. My friend Ralph in New Zealand, he, uh, he was a professional, he actually a professional basketball player in New Zealand, and um, he played in the Olympics in the year 2000, 
I think it was, yeah, the year 2000, he guarded Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson scored like 38 points on him, and, he, and Ralph said, it was the best game of my entire life. He said, I played, never played better defense, and the guy still scored 38 points on me. Uh, Ralph was really, really good at basketball. He had some really cool uh, opportunities in, in the game, and then he abruptly stopped playing. When I talked to him about why he abruptly stopped playing, he said, Jeff, you'll understand this as a pastor. I found that the person that I was when I was playing basketball was not the person I wanted to be in regards to following Christ. And so I had to make a decision. It was either going to be one or the other. Some people can do both, but for me, it was one or the other. Wasn't helping me walk with Christ, and so I gave it up. So let me ask you, what is the thing that's not helping you follow Christ? Yeah, look, there's sin, I know. Throw that off. But what is the other stuff? It hinders you. I mean, you run through it, but it, it, gets, it gets in the way. Money? Desire for it? Tension paid upon your own name, maybe? Your reputation? Maybe it's your friends. Maybe you find that when you're with those particular people, your love for Jesus diminishes a lot. And you end up doing things that you wouldn't do if you were thinking about what it looks like to finish the race with Jesus. You got to run without that rope. Last one. Uh, how, do we, how do we follow and continue? Well, we got to welcome the witnesses. You saw the line at the very beginning. It's a famous line. Uh, verse 1 again, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That first part does, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of, rich, uh, of witnesses. Now, when we think about a crowd, okay, so we're in this, this image with a race. So we think, okay, there are crowds that watch races. And when the crowds watch races, they sit there and they, and they watch, you know, I pay my, my admission, I go in, I get in my seat, you know, like 23B section 212. I sit down and I watch. In that sense, I am a witness, right? I'm witnessing something happening. The challenge here is actually, I don't, I don't think, I think that's part of what's meant with the word witness, okay? Marturios is the Greek word here. It means, though, something more than that. See, I, I can witness event or I can witness to what's happening on the field. Does that make sense? Uh, if I were a participant in the event and then I sit down, I'm both watching the event, but I'm also giving testimony to it when I cheer. I'm saying, yes, keep going that way because I went that way and I finished. Maybe an image is helpful here. Okay, so Wayne Gretzky, um, you know who he is? So Wayne, Wayne Gretzky is uh, sitting there with me because we're pals and we're watching the hockey game. We're not pals, by the way. Some of you are like, whoa, he knows Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> no, don't know Wayne Gretzky. So Wayne Gretzky, we're sitting there and we're watching the Oilers lose. So um, <laughs> no, we're watching. And, and uh, 
Now, I'm watching it, and I'm a witness to this. Uh, just so you know, I can't, I, if you got me on the ice, I'm terrible with the skating. It's terrible. Uh, I couldn't do it, even if I tried. So while I'm watching, I'm cheering, and I'm saying, go, you know, <laughs> cycle the puck. I don't know what that means either, right? Cycle the puck. And Wayne is sitting next to me. We're on the front, you know, maybe, and there's the, the, the boards there. And guy goes by, and I'm pounding on it. Come on! And Wayne is sitting next to me, and he's yelling, cycle the puck! And he's pounding on the thing, and he's saying all this gibberish of hockey and things. Now, I'm a witness. I'm watching the game. I'm even engaged to some degree. But Wayne is both a witness of and a witness to. He's a witness to in the sense that I know what I'm talking about because I used to do this better than you. So do what I'm telling you to do. Cycle the puck. Someone's going to tell me later what that means. I still don't know. I just, the guy's have to cycle the puck. But do you, do you see, the, see the difference? Well, what he's talking about here, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's talking about we're, since we're surrounded by such a great crowd of, a crowd, a crowd of Gretzky's. They are not just the people he just listed off in chapter 11 are not people like me who just watch it. I don't know what to do. This is just the game. I came in so I could eat popcorn and watch the guys hit each other. The, but Wayne is like, I know exactly what to do. I know exactly what's going on. And I'm here to pound on the glass so I can urge them forward in doing the right thing because it will achieve the end for which they seek. Since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us do all these things. In other words, there are a crowd of Christian brothers and sisters who have gone before us, who are pounding on the glass of our lives saying, keep going, keep going. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I was in a place that was really hard. Do you remember when I went into the the lion's den, do, do you remember when, that, when I went into, into the, the flames? Like, I know what you're facing, and I know the difficulties are, because I've been in those difficulties. I've gone a long, way to, a long way off and seen God provide in amazing ways, and sometimes not. I know what it's like to be discouraged and frustrated and all that. I know that. Cycle the puck. So look, let me finish with this. Adoniram Judson is a name you should know. Um, when we speak about uh, people, Christian people on whose shoulders we stand, he, he is one of the big ones. Uh, Adoniram Judson grew up a, as an American pastor's kid in the early 19th century, so the 1800s. He left the faith, though, you know, pastor's kid, he left the faith, though, for a little time out of high school, but he returned as a young adult. The story about how he returns, crazy, fascinating. But he eventually became burdened uh, for missions in general. He was actually reading this book about, uh, the, about the, 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 what is that, the British East Indian Company, and he, he, he was reading about all these adventures that these guys were having for the sake of business, and he was like, man, wouldn't that be amazing if you took the gospel to people like that? So he got his heart moved for missions in general, but then he got his heart moved for Burma in particular. It's called Myanmar today in Southeast Asia. So 
he made plans and he married his beloved Anne and uh, they sailed to Burma. A four month trip to Calcutta, India. They had to go to Calcutta, India first and then you could go over to Burma. So four month trip to Calcutta on this trip. See, his wife got onto the boat and she was pregnant in the middle of the ocean. Their child was born and immediately died. I mean, they're going to serve Jesus in a far off land to bring the gospel to them and their baby dies. They finally get there. They get to Calcutta for a number of reasons. They can't stay there for very long. So they immediately end up in Burma. There they are in Burma and he starts his, he starts his ministry. He figures that, look, the only way for these people to know anything about God is going to be if I can translate the Bible into Burmese. So he starts translating the Bible. While he's translating the Bible, his ministry is interesting because the Buddhist monks in those days, they would sit on the side of the road basically with these big tents. They called them zayats, big tents. And they would sit there and people could come by and come up to them and get counseling about Buddhism and stuff. And so Judson was like, huh, I'll set up a zayat on the side of the road. And when they come up and talk to me, I'm going to share the gospel with them. So he did this for years and years and years. People would beat him up because nobody, the, the, the Buddhists didn't want him there. There's religious freedom was not a thing in Burma. He's there for seven years. He gets 18 converts in seven years. In fact, the first one comes after the seventh year. Can you imagine seven years? He lost his second child there at seven months old during those seven years. So now he's lost two kids. He ends up going to say, thinks, well, if I can go to the government and I can get them to, to allow religious freedom, then I can bring more missionaries over and we can have a more impact. So he goes to the government. It just so happens at the time that he goes to the government, the Burmese get in a big fight with the British and everyone who's white is seen as being a spy. So Adoniram literally shows up at the Burmese government with his white skin is like, I want to talk to you. And he doesn't even finish the sentence. They're like spy. And they put him in a death prison whose purpose is pretty clear. And he's there. He's there for actually a year and a half. Every night in the death prison, they string a bamboo pole between the shackles on the feet of all the prisoners. And they lift the bamboo pole up so that the only part of their bodies that's touching the ground while they sleep is the back of their head and the back of their shoulders. And the rest is up in the air. So you can't escape. His wife would show up and would show up. She traveled four miles every day. She was pregnant at the time. Four miles every day to plead for his release. And to provide, they didn't provide you stuff in the prison. So she would give him the food and all sorts of stuff. She actually smuggled in, according to legend, she smuggled in a Bible inside of one of the packages that they couldn't see. <laughs> and he continued translating the Bible while he's in this Burmese prison. He gets out. They're rejoicing. Anne goes into labor. And she dies. Six months later, his the daughter who survived her death dies again. So he's, he's alone, and there is this image of him in some of the books where he is sitting 
uh, on the edge of his already dug grave where his babies and his wife are buried and he pictures himself in that grave and wonders what it would be like to lay there. Richard Pirard, one of the biographers, he said the barbaric treatment he had endured, the, the bitter, heart-rending anguish of losing his beloved Anne and the total destruction of his little church in Rangoon. Because when he got picked up, all of those converts took off. All of his life's work was ruined and his family was gone. All of that left Adoniram overcome with grief. For over a year, he lived in a retreat in the woods, mourning his wife and child and struggling with his own past pride and ambition. He even dug his own grave and sat beside it, imagining how he would look lying in it. And on the third anniversary of Anne's death, he wrote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. But Adoniram's faith sustained him, and he threw himself into the tasks to which he believed God had called him. He, he worked feverishly on his translation of the Bible. The New Testament had now been printed, and he finished the Old Testament only a few years later. He also ordained the first Burmese pastor, one of his original converts who'd been cast aside when he went into prison. Uh, they refounded the church in Rangoon. Today, there are three, three and a half thousand Baptist churches that show their lineage to that single church in, in Rangoon. A pastor who visited Myanmar at the 150th anniversary of Judson's translation, which was in 2008. Here's what the pastor said. He said, whenever someone mentions Judson's name, tears come to my eyes. This little Burmese guy. The tears come to my eyes because we know that he and his family suffered so much. But today, there are six million Christians in Myanmar, and every one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, the Reverend Adniram Judson. Behold the power of perseverance. You do know that there are thousands, maybe millions of men and women who are like this, who surround us. I know you can't see them, but there they are in the spiritual realm looking down upon us, giving testimony, witnessing to the path that they walked and they ran, and they're pounding on the glass, and they're telling you, I know what you're facing. I've sat on the edge of my grave, but I've seen what God can do through the most horrible, terrible moments. You've seen what God can do. And you know the one who's pounding the most on the glass is the one who's mentioned in, in verse 2, uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He gets glorified at the right hand of the throne of God, but the glory comes through suffering. And he's pounding, saying, I know what it's like to lose friends. I know what it's like to feel like your father has betrayed you. I know what it's like to have Judas kiss. I know what it's like to have nobody think that you can do what you say you can. I know what it's like. I know. Keep going. 
No matter what it is that's in front of you, keep going because there is joy in the distance. He's mocked on the cross, Jesus says. He's, he's crying in the garden. If I were him, I would have taken my ball and gone home, but he didn't. He ran his race faithfully to the end and received the reward. So the big question is, will you? Will you continue? You know faithful is he who calls you, and he also will do it. So you can embrace your race. You can run without the robe, and you can welcome the witnesses. Listen, let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your uh, goodness, and I'm thankful, Father, for uh, the Lord Jesus and all those who've gone before us who followed in his way and give testimony to the goodness of that way. And I'm thankful, Lord, that uh, you show us in your word what it looks like. And I it's hard for us to imagine that our lives are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We think that every moment is an eternity sometimes, Father, so the suffering of this present age seems way bigger than it is. But Father, help us to focus on the fact that the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. So Father, give us a heart for that glory. Give us a vision for that glory and help us to walk in the way Eternity, heaven, is a very, very long time, and this is not a very long time. So help us deal with these light and momentary afflictions so that we may one day hear, well done, good and faithful servants. You may enter into the joy of your master. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.